and prayed and nothing has changed my wife is not doing any better what should I do I've been pleading to the Lord for his grace and mercy on my wife but her condition is still unstable how much longer is she gonna have to suffer when is she gonna get better How could you allow this to happen to her, God? She loved you. I loved you. How much longer will this go on? Peter, how are you, man? How is she? No progress. Just the same, same. Listen, man, just because there isn't any progress, that doesn't mean God isn't listening to you. I mean, sometimes God says no to certain prayers because he has a better plan for us. It'll get better. Better? What is better than God healing my wife? Listen, man, I know, I know that this is really tough to hear, and I can only imagine what you're going through right now, but sometimes... <laughs> It's, it's at times like this that it's so easy for us to be resentful and distant from God when what we really need to do is to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray because God has a plan. You just got to trust him. You just have to see. You'll, you'll see. You just wait, man. God will work. God will work. All right, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see so many faces here today. It's good to see especially a lot of the faces that uh, were joining us last week for the first time. It's good to see so many people coming back. And, and the reason why that you're coming back here today is because the topic we're talking about, as I mentioned last week, is a topic that there isn't a person on this planet who isn't struggling with and facing. And if you are not struggling with it today, then you better be prepared because it's probably right around the corner. Because what we're talking about is something, a season of life that we all know is the waiting room season of life. And what we're doing here in this series that we talked about last week is answering one simple question. What do I do when there's nothing I can do? What do you do when there's nothing you can do? When, as we saw with the nice skit right there, when you're in a situation and you've tried and you've prayed and your mother has prayed and you've asked 10,000 people to pray and you've fasted and you did everything, everything, everything that you were supposed to do and you read God's little book 
And in God's little book, it says that when you do these things, all these great things should happen. But for some reason, they don't seem to be happening in my life. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? When you've tried everything and still no results? Well, today, this is the most important message in this series. That's why I'm so glad to see so many people here today. Today, I'm going to challenge you to do one thing that I'll bet you haven't done yet. I'm going to challenge you to do one thing in your waiting room that if you're struggling with, I bet you, you haven't done this one thing yet. But before I tell you what this one thing is, I'm going to tell you up front, what I'm asking you to do is not easy. Today's a hard message. Are y'all ready for a hard message? Y'all ready for a hard message? I need to hear from you. I need to hear from you. Say, I'm ready for a tough message. Say, say Father Anthony, I'm ready for a tough message. You say it. Okay, you asked for it. I was getting ready to go to the easy one, but since you asked for it, I'm going to give you the tough message. Because what I'm going to tell you here today may be the hardest thing that anybody will ever ask you to do in your life. But I promise you, if you are able to do this, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, it will transform your life. And it will transform your waiting room and all the waiting rooms to come in the future. Not saying that it will remove the waiting room from your life. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is it will give you the power over your waiting room. And on the flip side, I'll say if you don't get this message, then you're at risk. You're at serious risk. You're at serious risk of losing faith in God. Because I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. You go find any person who doesn't, who claims they don't believe in God, that there is no God. Nine out of ten times, it had nothing to do with theology or te- it had nothing to do with nothing. You know what it is? Is that person does, did not respond to their waiting room period in a proper way, and they never learned how to respond to the waiting room. So what they decided, it's easier to just write off the creator of the universe, who, like I said last week, they know he exists, and they're really angry at him even though he doesn't exist. And I'll tell the whole world how angry I at someone that I, don't, that I say it doesn't exist. But I'm really angry at him, and I'll tell the whole wide world. Because if you don't learn how to deal with your waiting room, you are at risk of losing your relationship with God one day. So here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to fast forward to the end of the message right now, and then we'll come back and, 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 and try to break it down. I'm going to tell you the, the summary. The one challenge that you asked for, not me, you asked for, said give me a hard message. I'm going to tell you right now that in your waiting room, you have this option. And that is this. I have the option. To embrace my adversity as a gift from God. We're going to break down that sentence. because That's not an easy sentence. I have the option to embrace my adversity as a gift from God. It's an option that isn't natural to us. Because most of us would say that in our waiting room, not only we don't embrace our adversity, we do everything we can to resist it, to refuse it to push it away. And what I'm asking you to do today is to not only to not push it away, not only to accept its existence in your life, but to actually open up wide and embrace my adversity as a gift from the hand of my loving father. Do you have to do this? No, this is an option. You know, when you go rent a car and they say, would you like the insurance? It's up to you. You don't want the insurance? It's up to you. But then you're saying, I got this covered on my own. So everyone has that option. And I don't think I have the right to go to someone who's in a waiting room situation like this and say, you must accept this as a gift from God. I don't have the right to say that. I'm not in his shoes. I don't have the right to say those things. 
What I do have the duty to do is to tell you the options available to you, and then you make the choice that you want. And if you want to decline coverage, that's up to you. But I'll tell you this, the people who thrive and sur first survive and then thrive in the waiting room, and you know people like that. You know people in the hospital, that, that, that cancer doesn't take them down, the cancer lifts them up. You know people who have gone through extraordinary amounts of pain. That pain doesn't kill their relationship with God. That pain fuels their relationship with God. The difference between the people who are this and the people who are that is people who have learned to embrace adversity as a gift from God. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. First, let's do a little recap for those who weren't here last week, just to refresh our, our memories. Last week we talked about is the waiting room periods of life. And what is the waiting room? The waiting room is when you're in a season of life where things aren't where they're supposed to be, where you would say, this wasn't part of the plan. Could be in your marriage, okay, where you say, you know what? We, you know, fell in love and we were going to live happily ever after, but we ain't living happily ever after. We're going to live forever, but we ain't going to be happy about it. And he doesn't want to change and she doesn't want to change. And like I said, neither of us really wants to get a divorce, so we don't really, we're just going to be miserable for the rest of our lives. We're stuck in the waiting room. Nothing we can do. We tried everything we can. Maybe you're a parent. You got kids. Kids aren't turning out the way you thought they would have turned out. They're not listening. They're not walking that road that you wanted them, and it's killing you on the inside. That's the waiting room period. Maybe it's a health thing. Maybe it's a lost loved one thing. Maybe since I see we got a lot of students here today, maybe it's an academic thing. Maybe you applied to medical school or to law school. We're in a law school here. Maybe you applied to law school. You got rejected. And you applied again. You got rejected again. You applied again. You got rejected again. And it's time for you to embrace the reality that you're probably not going to get in law school. That sitting here today is as close as you are going to get to any law school sitting here at George Mason today. <laughs> the waiting room is when you are in a period where you say it wasn't supposed to, this wasn't part of the plan. And what's the worst thing about the waiting room when you're sitting there? The waiting room has lots of windows. So when you're sitting there in the waiting room, you see other people's lives. And I see her life and say, you know what? I was supposed to have that life. And I see his life and say, God, like, what did I do, God? You ever been in this situation? What did I do that he has this? And like I said, we smile and we nod and we say congratulations, but we hate their guts. What did I do, God? Are you punishing me? Why am I, what am I missing out on? And like we said last week, is then when that happens, we come to three bad conclusions. We come to the conclusion that one, I'll never be happy again. Two, nothing good can come from this. And three, there's no point in even trying. Those are the bad conclusions that we reach. There's no good from this. I'll never, ever be happy again. And there's no point in even trying. We get resentful. We get bitter. We get angry. But then last week, we saw some groundbreaking stuff because we saw two stories from the scripture, two stories from the New Testament, which opened our eyes to new realities because we saw two people who we saw that God loved dearly. God loved them dearly. And they were stuck in some strong waiting rooms, some powerful waiting rooms. So what we learned last week is that God's silence does not mean his absence, okay? That just because God is not saving us from the waiting room, remember we said God is not absent, God is not apathetic, and God is not angry with us. That we saw that there is no conflict between God loving me and God not cooperating with me. There's no conflict between the two. So it's not a matter of either I have God or I have adversity. That's how sometimes we think. If I had God, I'd have no adversity. If I have adversity, it means God left me. And we saw God has not left me. God is not angry with me. We saw God is with me. He's Emmanuel. He's God with me. So we saw that the presence, that adversity and God actually do coexist and there's no conflict between them. Sometimes we are tempted to think 
that if God is not saving us from the waiting room, which really, let's be honest, what does it mean when I say saving us from the waiting room? It means God cooperating with my, like God submitting to my idea. That's what it is. Is that God, I have a plan and you are not on schedule. See God, I was supposed to be married by this day. You're not on schedule, God. God, this person wasn't supposed to get sick. That's not supposed to happen. God, this is how my career was supposed to work. We have a plan and God is not doing a very good job of abiding by our plan. Some people, when God doesn't cooperate with their plan, are tempted to think that he doesn't exist. God doesn't exist because if he did exist, then this wouldn't happen. If proof of, if cooperating with our plans was proof of existence, then my children would not believe that there's such a thing called a dad. If it's true that either you cooperate with what I want or you don't exist, then my children would be walking around, I, I don't believe in dad. There's no such thing as a dad. There ain't no dad. Because every day at nighttime, I have a plan of when I think I should sleep, but there's no dad. Because dad makes me go to sleep at this time. There's no such thing as a dad. And that's how we walk around. That's what I'm saying. The people who say there's no such thing as God is people who can't accept that God doesn't have to cooperate with their plan. But what we see in the scripture, Jesus told us the very opposite of that. He said in John 16, 33, a famous verse you all know, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He's saying the presence of tribulation does not negate the presence of God. The lack of cooperation from God doesn't negate his presence and his extreme love for each and every single one of us. The two can coexist. So let me ask you a question. If it's so clearly laid out in scripture, the world you have a tribulation, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. There's so many verses that talk about anyone who wants to live godly in Christ will have persecution. We see all about that stuff in the scripture. Where did this idea get in our minds that if anything bad happens to me, anything outside of my plan, therefore God doesn't love me or God doesn't care about me or God is not with me. Where did this idea come from? This is the world we live in, and it's the great, great country of the United States of America, which is the best country in the whole wide world, but we have to say it has some flaws. And there's some flaws in the society that we live in today. And this is something that is specific to our culture here in America. Not that it's not anywhere else, but it's probably most prevalent here than it is other places in the world. And we have this mentality here that there is nothing that cannot be fixed. There's nothing that can't be fixed. You got a pain, there's a medicine for it. There's no such thing as a pain without a medicine. There's no such thing as a problem that if we don't, this land of the free, that if we try hard enough, that we can't solve. We all grew up on Disney movies, right? You watch the Disney movie, every Disney movie is the same. Disney movie starts off with a problem, and it's usually a family problem. And it's usually, this is why I'm a little against Disney, it's always a bad dad, if you pay attention. It's always, the dad is bad. Okay, the dad won't let the little fish swim with the other cool fish. The dad won't let the little mermaid swim by the shore. It's always the dad is the meanie guy. And then what happens? What happens in every Disney movie? I'm not making this up. What happens in every Disney movie is that the little Nemo guy or the, the mermaid girl, okay, they say, you know what? Forget about the dad and let's fight for our rights and let's go out there and search for true love and, and stuff like that. And they always come back and they discover the meaning of life and they discover freedom and true love. And there we have this ingrained in our mind that no matter what the situation, man, you fight for your rights and you go out there, land of the free, and you will find love and live happily ever after. But then our lives don't work that way. And our lives doesn't work that way. Is that we don't always live happily ever after. And when we don't always live happily ever after, the world that we live in, made worse by technology, by the way, Facebook specifically, all right? And I'm not one of those people that thinks like Facebook is the antichrist or anything like that, all right? 
But I will tell you that Facebook doesn't help in this situation. Because as soon as I turn on Facebook, what do I see? All the other good stuff happening in everyone else's lives. Because that's what you post pictures of. You don't post pictures of the miserable situations in your life. This is me miserable on a Friday night here. <laughs> I promise you, you post that, you'd be the most popular person in the world. That's not what happens. Is we are alone and our family is broken and we see nice, oh those, oh, those lovely Christmas cards that you love to send to people. Those lovely Christmas cards that have everything great in your family. And we know that it's just for the picture. All right? We know that it's not real. But when I see that picture and I compare it to my family, I say, what did I do wrong? I see what happens in everyone else's life and how good stuff is happening and then the blessings there. And I look at myself and say, God, what did I do to deserve this? Well, thankfully, as we saw last week and we'll see again this week, this is not a new topic. The idea of adversity, challenging God's people and, and confronting us to go through this challenge of faith, of can adversity and God coexist in my life? Can love of God and pain coexist in my life? This is not a new topic. And in fact, if you go through the pages of scripture, you will find, I don't even want to say the Bible stories. All right, I don't want to say the Bible stories. I want to say the Bible writers, those who wrote the stories. Like everything we know from the Bible, the people who wrote it down for us, every single one of them with very, very few exceptions, the vast, vast majority of people who wrote about Christianity and told us what it is, were people who were well acquainted with grief. People who were well acquainted with adversity. And the adversity in their life did not push them away from God, but it actually pushed them towards God. That it did not cause them to lose their faith in their father. It actually fueled their faith and it pushed them to an even stronger and higher level of faith. And it pushed them to the point that they said, I'm willing to give my life to pass this same faith along to future generations. And we are who we are today because they did not fold under adversity and they did not let go of God, but they embraced their adversity and they saw it as a gift from God. And there is no better example than who our highlight today is going to be is the apostle Paul. If you go to the history of Christianity, two most important characters in the world. One is our Lord Jesus Christ, tough to top him. Number two is St. Paul. There is nobody who was, had a more direct influence on the world, the Christian world that we live in. Jesus, number one, St. Paul, number two. Because what St. Paul did after Jesus ascended up to the heavens and he left a motley crew of disciples, all right, 11, 12 guys whom their job was to take this new faith in the risen Christ and start to tell all these people about it. But their circle was pretty small. It was the Jewish world. It was one culture. It was one society of people that was limited in geography, but more importantly, limited in culture. And then one guy, St. Paul, came around, and his job was to take the gospel to the rest of the world. So 12 guys take it to the Jewish people, and one guy was responsible for spreading it to the entire rest of the world, the Greek-speaking world all around him. That's a pretty big mission. And he was given this mission by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Y'all know the story is that St. Paul walking down the road. Okay, St. Paul didn't start off as a Christian, all right? He actually started off as a hater of Christians. So if you are joining us here today and, you know, you're new to this Christianity thing and you hate Christians, you love St. Paul, okay? Because you start off on the same place. You think to yourself, there's some Christian that should be arrested. He did the arresting, okay? That was his job. He would go around and arrest people who were Christian that just annoyed him. This was his job. One day, 
He's walking down a road to Damascus, and he's on his way to arrest and persecute Christians. As he's walking down that road, he sees a light. Light knocks him off his horse, and it's Jesus himself appearing to him in a bright light that says to him that you are walking the wrong walk here. You think that you're serving God? You're actually uh, the exact opposite of that. And Jesus called him by name. And he tells us that story several places in the scripture, but we'll see what Jesus said here, Acts 26, 15 to 16. So I, Paul, said, who are you, Lord? Saw this light, he got blind. Who are you? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Jesus himself saying, I have a purpose for you, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. So you see that Jesus himself appears to Paul and says, I got a great mission for you. And you're going to do, you're going to turn the world upside down. No one has a bigger mission in the world than you. I got a special plan for your life. So you would think, you would think that if the creator of the universe, the almighty God says, I have an important thing for you to do, that he is going to shield me from certain adversities so I can do the job. Like if, 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 Someone in the company asked me to do this task. I can't do that. But if the CEO comes and asks me, you assume the CEO is going to give you certain privileges and certain authority that you can get that job done. Because he's the CEO. If he wants it done, he can protect me from He can say, you don't got to go to your weekly staff meeting. The CEO can say that. He can protect me from certain things to be able to accomplish his mission. But I got Jesus now telling me, I had a great mission for you. For sure. St. Paul will be exempt from the adversity. Well, we're going to see today, we're going to look at a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where St. Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, which maybe you've heard that term before. It actually comes from the scripture, his thorn in the flesh. St. Paul was not protected from the waiting room. And St. Paul was given a debilitating disease that directly hindered his ability to do this. And if there's anyone in the universe that had a right to say, God, you asked me to do this, and then you gave me this, which is stopping me from this take it away. If there's anyone who had a right to challenge God on this waiting room period, it was St. Paul. We're going to see what St. Paul, ha what happened to St. Paul in his waiting room. Like I said, we're going to see 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to break it down and try to dig into what does one do in these waiting room periods. And we're going to see from the example of St. Paul. Start in verse 7. St. Paul says this. He says, unless I should be exalted above measure, Okay, let me give you a little context, sorry. The beginning part of this chapter, St. Paul is speaking about how God had given him many visions, visions of heaven. As you saw right there, like who was the one who converted Paul to a Christian was Jesus himself appeared. Like he saw Jesus himself, a bright light. He heard a voice. St. Paul was able to see stuff that nobody else saw. And that's why he was able to write stuff and preach stuff that nobody else knew. St. Paul had all kinds of visions and revelations. And then he says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. So because of those revelations, lest I be conceited or lest I be exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. I'm going to break this down. And you see in your handouts, we're going to break down three words or phrases in this, in this passage. And the first word I want to break down is the word lest, which appears two times right there. He says, lest I be exalted above measure. All right, and he says it twice. Forget about the specific reason. Forget about the specific of why this thorn was given to him. But what's clear by the word lest, lest means intended for a purpose. 
Forget about the specific purpose, because that's not that that's specific to Paul and his thorn. He was given a thorn to make sure that he didn't get conceited or to make sure that he didn't, you know, get puffed up in his head. Forget about the actual reason why. What I want to focus on is that there was a purpose to what was given to him. Other translations translate the word lest as in order to, in order to do something, I gave something. So God had a plan and says, I want this, so therefore I give this. So the first thing we see is the thorn in the flesh has a purpose. It was intended for a reason. Next thing he says, next phrase I want to focus on, is given to me. And that word given to me is a very powerful word if you understand the root of where it comes from. See, our problem in English is we don't have as many words as they had in Greek. Greek had a lot more words, so it's like the word love. Okay, we say love, I love my wife, I love the Redskins, not so much this year, but I love them in general, okay? I love pizza, I love sunny days. We use the word love to mean 10,000 different things, not in Greek. In Greek, they had a word for love that meant this, a love for this, and a love for this. So I wouldn't say pizza and my wife have the same definition of how I feel about them. Same thing with the word given. This word given is a very positive word, and it literally means gifted or received as a present. I can say, in English, the word give in a positive and negative way. I can say, I was given a bonus at work. Or I can say, I was given a cold, or a flu, or a, or a virus. Same word, given. If I'm gonna talk about a thorn in the flesh, you would think I would use the negative. Like I was, like you gave me a cold. You gave me a, a virus. You gave me a headache. You gave me a thorn in the flesh. You cursed me with. You forced it upon me. But when St. Paul uses the word given, he uses the positive word. And it's the same word. If St. Paul was talking about on December 25th, I went down to the tree and I sat around the tree and I received the gifts. I was given presents. This is the word that he used. Surprising choice. So what St. Paul says, in order to accomplish something, I was given a gift. What's the gift? The gift? Thorn in the flesh is a problem. I was given just the name of it, a thorn in the flesh. Can't be good. Can't be good. Ooh, a thorn in the flesh. Yes. What is this thorn in the flesh? We don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. St. Paul doesn't tell us specifically. If you read Bible scholars, they'll give you many different opinions as to what this thorn was. Some people say, one of the common opinions, is that this thorn in the flesh was a disease like epilepsy. And you can imagine, if you are St. Paul, and it is your job to go to the Greek world, the highly sophisticated philosophical world, and to be an orator amongst them and convince them of Christianity, having epilepsy was 100% detrimental to your purpose. Because what would happen if you started to foam, okay, or and have a, a seizure and, have, and, 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 and like go into a fit? Back then, they didn't understand what we understand today. What would they think about you if you started to have a seizure in front of all these people in public? They'd say, you are? You're possessed. You're demon-possessed. So this, 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 this thorn is directly opposed to God, what you were asking me to do. It's, and as you see in your handout, it is painful, 
it is humiliating, and it is debilitating. Some other people say it wasn't epilepsy. Some people say it was like sharp headaches. Again, and if whoever suffered from migraine headaches, all right, the kind that are debilitating, the kind that you can't move out of bed from. Some people say it was a disease in his eyes where he couldn't see to be able to write, and he was asked by God to write all these epistles, and he couldn't see to write. Whatever it was, it was painful. It was humiliating. It was something embarrassing, and it was debilitating. And look at the word that he describes. He said, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, messenger of Satan to buffet me. Y'all know what buffet means? Remember like those colonial, like to buffet? It means literally to strike with the hand, like a punch. So he was saying that I was given this thorn in the flesh that literally, that beat me up every day. I woke up and this thing beat me up every, like the word buffet is what would be used to describe a bully. I went to school and I was buffeted by the bully. St. Paul, man of God, messenger of Christianity, turned the world upside down. He says that every day I was beaten to a pulp by this problem. And it was given as a gift by God for a purpose. What would you do if you received a gift like this? You do what St. Paul did. Next verse. It says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Don't over-spiritualize the saints of the Bible. Please don't do that. Don't think that St. Paul was excited about his thorn in the flesh. That he's excited that he could be humiliated in front of public. Don't think that he was excited to be in pain all day. Don't think that. Don't over-spiritualize it. That St. Paul, just like me and you, if you had this situation happen to you, you would plead to God for it to depart. And it says he pleaded with the Lord three times. And some people, just to understand, pleaded with three times doesn't mean like, you know, I woke up, you know, please God, you know, uh, let the bad thing go away and let the skins win today. And then, you know, at, at dinner, please God bless our food and, uh, oh, yeah, the thing. That doesn't mean like that. Doesn't mean like he just thought of it three random times or he wrote it on some funny little prayer list and stuck it in his pocket for six months. It means three seasons of life of intense prayer. Three seasons where he said, you know what? I'm not going to preach. I'm going to bury myself in my room and God, I cannot continue with this anymore. I cannot continue. You choose. Either you get rid of that thorn or I can't serve you anymore. I can't do this, God. This is too much for me. And in those three seasons... Where St. Paul did it. He prayed for an entire season. And what response to him was nothing. Another season of life. The response was nothing. Finally, after the third season, God responded to him and God spoke to him. And listen to what God said. He said, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. How do you interpret that answer? Let's interpret it at a physical level and then at a spiritual level. What's the first thing that Jesus said here with this? My grace is sufficient for you. Please, God, remove this. Please, God, remove it. Please, God, remove it. Please, 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 please remove it. My grace is sufficient for you. That means in addition to it being painful, humiliating, debilitating, you can pencil it in that it's also permanent. It's not going away. God is saying, get used to this thorn in the flesh. I'm not removing it. But I will tell you this, that my grace is sufficient for you. I'll tell you this, St. Paul. 
that I'm not going to take away that thorn in the flesh. But if you trust me, I will give you my grace. And grace, you can use the word grace or power, okay, or strength. It's the same word. My power, my grace. I will not take away your waiting room, but I will give you power over your waiting room. I will not take away the thorn in the flesh, but I will give you the strength to not only endure, to not only endure, but to thrive. Because what you realize is that lest something happened, I presented you with a problem. I had a purpose to give you this present, which turns out to be a problem. Oh, and by the way, St. Paul, by the way, I love you. I'm not taking this away, but by the way, I love you. And by the way, I have a great plan for your life. And this thing, which you hate and which is stopping you, listen carefully to this one, St. Paul. This thing, which you hate and is stopping you, is 100% part of my plan for your life. So what do you say if you're St. Paul? And God says, I won't remove it. I'm the one who gave it to you. You want to know what St. Paul says? St. Paul says something. It's not a human sentence, what's next? It's not a human being who would say this next sentence. He says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will rather do what? Come again? I will rather boast. Some translations of the Bible say glory. I will glory. I will boast in my infirmities. People look at St. Paul and they say, oh, that's the guy who has like the, the thing and he does. St. Paul says, what'd you say? Yeah, that's me. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you how weak I am. Let me tell you the problems in my life. Let me tell you what I've been through. Why? How can anybody in their right mind boast in their weakness, boast in their infirmity? Here's the key. Embracing your weakness as a gift is the only way to unleash God's grace upon it. Sorry. You know this to be true and I know this to be true because we have tried to solve it in every different way. We have tried to get God's power in our life and God's grace in this. We have tried every way. The bottom line is, the key to finding God's grace is embracing your weakness, embracing your adversity as a gift from God. That ain't easy stuff. Don't just skip over these words. If you happen to be in a situation in life where you are not in a waiting room, more power to you. We're very happy for you. We all hate your guts. Don't skip over these words. Because we're talking about people. Like, let's make this now. Let's transition now from the Bible to people. Because there are people who come sit with me who every single day of their life are lonely in a painful way. And they've been lonely and they smile in front of everybody else. But every day they go back to their home and the loneliness is killing them on the inside. And I say embrace it as a gift. There are people whose families are being torn apart right in front of their eyes. And I say embrace it as a gift. There are people with serious pain. Serious pain. The kind of pain that you can't sleep at night. The kind of pain that makes you want to jump off a bridge. And I'm not making that as a joke. I'm talking about serious pain. And there's no medication for it. And I'm saying do what with it? Embrace it. It's not the American way. It's not the Walt Disney World way. 
Where's the happily ever after in this story? Let me tell you something, Father Anthony. What about faith? Why you have no faith? I have faith that God will heal me of this. I have faith. And I say, more power to you if you got faith. That's great. I'm not against faith. But there comes a certain point in time where God says no, and it's not about faith. Because if faith was all it took to get your problem solved, then why is St. Paul be struggling with his thorn in the flesh? Do you think you have more faith than St. Paul? Do you think St. Paul was going around doubting? Do you think there's anybody in the world who can match that kind of faith? If it was just faith, you know why we say faith? Forgive me. We say faith as an excuse to live selfish lives. We want to live comfortable lives, and we don't want adversity. So we say, no, if I just believe more and have faith more and pray more and more and more and more, because we cannot accept that there may be situations in life that don't end happily ever after. But that's life. The truth of the matter is, it's not about faith. It's about embracing. And it's about my strength is made perfect in weakness. And until we learn to embrace the adversity, when Jesus appeared to St. Paul, for those who know the story, it's in Acts chapter 9. He said something to him that was a strange phrase. I don't know if y'all remember. He appeared to him and he said that you're persecuting me. Now you need you to preach me. And he said to him, it is hard to kick against the goads. Y'all remember that? It is hard to kick against the goads. Again, a common expression that you hear people say, don't realize it's from the Bible. It's from the Bible. It is hard to kick against the goads. Y'all know what that means? Y'all know what a goad is? A goad was like a long stick. All right. Like a long stick, like a fishing rod, kind of a stick, that kind of a length. But on the end was a sharp spike like really pointy and really sharp. And what they would do, well, there would be an ox who wouldn't move. They would just kind of, they would prod him with the goad. And they would prick him so it would kind of giddy up, kind of a thing. And sometimes there'd be a dumb ox that would fight the goad and would say, here comes the goad, and they would kick the goad. Imagine if a sharp pointy thing, and you just, you know, when like imagine like a thorn bush that you, you know what I'm saying? Imagine that you go in there as hard as you can into that goad. What are you doing? Are you making it easier? You're only causing more pain. You can't break the goad. The goad can only break you. You know what your best bet is if you're being pricked by a goad? Hold on to that goad. Stop pushing it. Because every time you push it, it just hurts you more. Embrace it. You know what happens when you embrace? St. Paul says this. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. It's the same. This incredible. A de- epilepsy, the, uh, a debilitating disease. I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's say that all together. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Say it like you mean it. For when I am weak, then I am strong when I have learned to embrace the adversity in my life as a gift from God, as a Christmas present, open it up for a purpose that God is giving it to me for a purpose. Only then will I unleash God's grace upon my life. Is this easy? Is this easy? Remember in the beginning, you asked for it. 
truth of the matter is, this is the hardest thing you'll ever be asked to do in life. And again, go back to what I said in the beginning. I'm not telling you you must do this. I said in the beginning, you have the option to do it. Because again, who am I to come into your suffering life and say that you, I'm not saying to anybody you have to. You have the right to not accept it. You have the right to resist it. You have the right to refuse it and to pretend it doesn't exist and to live your whole life and never really face it. You have that right. But you also have the option to embrace it as a gift from God given for a purpose. And when you do embrace it, then you will open the door to a whole new realm that God is giving to me for a purpose. What the purpose is, I don't know. But I know there's a purpose. And I know that his grace is sufficient to accomplish it. What I'm saying is not easy. And I'm telling you, I'm being honest here. These words that I speak to you, I've been in some tough situations sitting in front of people. Sitting in front of people and just some examples on the top of my head. So I've been sitting with people who buried their own children. People who had to bury their own children. If you don't know how difficult that is, ask any parent. That would be the hardest thing, to bury your own children. I sat in front of people who were abused sexually in horrible ways by family members in horrible ways. I sat with people whose struggles in their marriage makes you want to just, like, Beat yourself. That someone who has to go home and live in a house of fear every single day, that they open the door and they don't know what's on the inside. I sat with people in those situations, and I, just like you, because there's a little bit of blood in there as well, okay, not much, but there's a little bit of blood in there that says, you know what, don't say this to them. Don't tell them to embrace it. You can't do it. Don't do it. Don't sit in front of this person and tell them to embrace this as a gift. Don't do it. I can't do it. But then every single time I come to the same thing, I'm doing you a disservice, a disservice if I don't tell you this. Because I know that no matter how bad your situation is, no matter how painful your waiting room is, the only way to convert it, the only way to convert it is to embrace it as a gift from God. Not resisting it, not, not, not saying, God, why? Not saying, how come? Not saying, God, when? But saying, God, you put this in my life. And even though I hate it, I accept it and I embrace it. And I'm holding you, God, to your promise. You said that my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You said that. I'm holding you, God, to your promise. I will no longer resist. I will accept and I will wait for your grace to get me through this. Not easy to do. But let me just share one last thing. that might make it a little easier. Once upon a time, there was someone else who was very special to God, who saw some tough days. Very special to God. He was God's only begotten son. And our Lord Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, the night before his death, the night before the worst day in the history of humanity, when he suffered the most painful death, the word cross, okay, gives us the word, same root word as the word excruciating. Crucifixion and excruciating, it's the same root word because we got the word excruciating from the word crucifixion, same root word. From the day and before, the night before, the most miserable day, the most excruciatingly painful day for a man who didn't commit one crime, not even one sin, his entire life. 
suffer the most worst kind of death you can possibly imagine. The night before he died, he took a group of his friends, the apostles, and went out to a garden called Gethsemane. And he spent some time in prayer out there. And this is what he said. He says he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Stop right there. Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. That sounds a lot like we pray, which is extremely, I don't know if you see it the same way I do, extremely comforting to see that based on this verse, I'm telling you, I'm not asking anybody here to be superhuman and to have no heart and no emotions. I'm saying based on this verse, I have permission. I have permission from God that I can say, God, I hate this. I can say, God, remove this cup. Take this thorn away from me. It is too much for me, God. I don't have to walk around with a little Christian face and my little Christian music and my little Christian sayings and Christian, Christian, Christian and just say life is great and life is happy and even though I'm miserable on the inside, I can be a real person. Jesus was a real person. He was 100% God. He was 100% man. And sometimes we focus so much on that he was God that we forget that he was a man. He was 100% man like me and you. Don't ever mistake that. And he stood in front of his father. He knelt in front of his father and he said, I can't take this take this cup from me. And I'm telling you, you have permission to do the same. But the same way you have permission to say what he said in the start, you have the option to say what he said after that, which is nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here's this great picture, which I wish I would have brought it for you, that I seen of Jesus hugging his cross. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture. Picture of Jesus hugging the cross. Here, we see Jesus saying every exact same thing that we say. Take this cup from me. But in the second he said that, we see him say what we need to get to, which is not my will, but yours be done. He embraced his adversity. He embraced his cross. And that made all the difference in the world. What happens when you embrace your cross? Something mysterious happens, and I'm just going to throw this out there, and I'm not going to explain it because I can't explain it, and nobody can explain it. But the way St. Paul spoke, the way Jesus speaks, makes you realize that something happens when you embrace that cross. Something happens when you embrace the adversity and stop resisting and say, God, I accept this as a gift, a Christmas present from you for a purpose. And what happens is somehow you mysteriously enter into the sufferings of Christ himself. Don't ask me how, just read this verse, and I'm not be able to explain it because I can't explain it. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Do not think it strange. Do not be surprised when you find yourself in the waiting room. This is life on this earth. As though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. You see me get kind of excited up here when I talk about this stuff. You know the reason why? Because I've seen the power of embracing your adversity as a gift. And I'm telling you, it is transformational. It is transformational. Because when you embrace it, you turn death into life. You turn darkness into light. You turn sadness into joy. How? I don't know. Don't ask me how, but go see what happened with St. Paul, how he embraced and he then boasted. Go see what happened with our Lord Jesus Christ as he embraced and then he, all his glory exalted. 
And I'm telling you, mysteriously, when we accept and embrace our suffering and our adversity in our waiting room, then somehow, this is what I always tell people when I sit with them, somehow what you are going to say is this. You are going to look back one day, many, many years from now, you're going to look back and say, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me too. It was the thing that I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. But I wouldn't change it if I could go back and change it. Because I see that it wasn't my enemy in life. It wasn't something coming to destroy me. It was a gift given by God for a purpose. And it's not until I embrace it that I'll discover God's grace and I'll, the purpose will be revealed in my life. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we don't know, we don't know what to say, Lord. We believe that you can change all things, and that all things are small in your hands. But Lord, for so many of us, you haven't changed them. You haven't changed our circumstances. You haven't solved our problem, even though it's just one snap of the fingers. But you've chosen not to. Lord, we choose to trust in you and to trust in your wisdom. And we choose, Lord, to embrace what you have given to us as a gift. And it's so hard to even say those words or to even think those words because we spend our whole life fighting but we need your grace in our life, Lord. We trust you. We believe in you. We know that you are fully able. But we choose this day, Lord, to embrace our adversity and to see it as a gift in your hand. And I pray, Lord, upon every person who's bowing their head, bowing their heart, some people, Lord, you've given them a tough hand. But I know, Lord, I know that you have a great reward for them if they would only trust you and embrace their adversity. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us all strength to do what we know we need to do, even when we don't want to do it, and that you would show yourself mighty and show yourself strong, and you would pour your grace, and your grace would be not sufficient, but more than sufficient for every single one of our needs. I ask these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the prayers of all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you all very much. Have a great week.